accomplish uh, provoking one another to love and good works. So let's pray, and we will hop into Matthew. Lord, we are so grateful to be here this morning to have the chance to open up your word, uh, passages of scripture that all of us should be familiar with as we've read Matthew 1 to 5 this week. Thank you so much for the continuity of the word, the unity that it provides for us as believers, its effectiveness in our lives, even though it was written thousands of years ago, that we can still read these things and let them change our hearts. Lord, I pray that even this morning, as we uh, listen and discuss, that we would find ourselves being conformed into the image of your Son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, I want you guys to imagine something with me this morning. In your mind's eye, I want you to imagine that you are a Jew living in the first century. When I say the first century, you're probably thinking, oh, these were the events of Jesus. Yes, you're exactly right, but I actually want you to think about being a Jew perhaps 20, maybe 30 years after the death of Christ. What would that look like for you? If you're a faithful Jew, you're still going to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. You're still hearing Moses, the prophets, read to you. There are probably passages from the law that are just very near and dear to your heart. You know about David. You know about Abraham. You know about Moses. I mean, God gave the law to Moses. If you're a Jew, again, 20, 30 years after the death of Christ, you're still going to the temple to offer sacrifices. You probably are living in accordance with the law. Probably not a Pharisee, probably not taking it that extreme, but you're doing the best you can to follow and observe the Jewish law. And like all faithful Jews, you are still expectantly awaiting the coming of the Messiah. The need for a deliverer is pretty obvious to you. Rome has occupied your territory for the last hundred years or so. You are uh, almost a stranger in your own land as there are people more powerful than you that are kind of setting the tone and the direction for the way that you can live and practice your faith. You need a deliverer. And as you are practicing your faith, you become increasingly aware of another group of people who share a lot in common with you, although they believe that the Messiah has already come. That puzzles you. There's some things that you share in common with these people. Some of them are also Jews. Some of them you know personally. That's fine, but there's some things that these people are teaching that make you uncomfortable right? Because not only have these people said that the Messiah has already come, but they are starting to teach that you don't need to follow the law anymore. They're starting to teach that the things like circumcision and the dietary restrictions, you don't need to observe. 
the temple that you go to and offer sacrifices to, they say, you don't need to offer sacrifices anymore. And you are shocked. Sacrifices are the only way that you know God, that you can be reconciled to him. How can someone tell me the temple's obsolete? This Messiah that they talk about, he's the most puzzling figure of all because rather than setting up an earthly kingdom, he died 20 years ago. The Messiah, the Deliverer, dies? You have a hard time wrapping your mind around that one. You are kind of impressed because although he's been dead for two decades, the amount of followers that he's accumulated has only grown. That is unusual for someone to die and their followers to increase, and yet you're looking at Jesus of Nazareth and his followers, and they just keep multiplying. What is going on here? All right, so let me ask you this. As this Jewish person living in this era, seeing what is Christianity in its infant stages start to gain traction and pick up steam and seeing that you do share some in common with them, what would it take to convince you as a Jewish person of the validity that Jesus is indeed the Messiah? Any ideas? What would convince you? Right? It's probably not just the popularity of Christianity. You're a Jew. God gave you the law on the mountain. Judaism has worked fine for 1,500 years. What's it going to take, Julia? Exactly. For those of you who didn't hear, Julia said, if you knew that this Jesus that all these Christians are talking about was the fulfillment of your scriptures... That'd be a pretty compelling argument, huh? If someone were able to take you from your law, your prophets, your wisdom literature, and say, Jesus checks all the boxes, that'd be hard to argue against. Matthew says, challenge accepted. I'm going to show you Jewish people from your own scriptures Jesus is the Messiah, and he hits the ground running right from the first chapter. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1 together. As I said, Matthew hits the ground running. He's not even into the first verse before he's already pointing a neon sign at Jesus and saying he's the fulfillment of these scriptures. Verse 1, we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I'm sure you know this already, but maybe just as a refresher, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a title. It is a Greek word from where the Hebrew word Messiah comes from. So when Matthew says that Jesus is the Christ, he's pointing at Jesus and he's saying, this is your Messiah. And he is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now we know that Jesus being the son of Abraham is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the one through whom the whole world would be blessed. But from what I understand for the Jewish people, this title, son of David, had some huge messianic implications to it. We just finished reading through 2 Samuel. We saw the Davidic covenant. Anyone remember what promise 
God made to David that would be significant for Matthew 1 from the Davidic covenant? Yes. Cuppy said that one of his offspring would sit on the throne. So when Matthew identifies Jesus as the son of David, it's like ding, 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 ding. Here he is. He's the son of David. And actually, this theme can be traced throughout the Old Testament. It begins where Cuppy said in 2 Samuel chapter 7, but the books of Isaiah, I actually have them written down. Let me make sure I get this right. Um, Isaiah, Psalms, Jeremiah reference a coming offspring of David. There's a couple more possible allusions in Ezekiel and in Hosea. Zechariah mentions a coming king. And so if you are a Jew who has any familiarity at all with the scriptures, with your prophets having all anticipated the coming offspring of David, when Matthew says, here is Jesus, the son of David, he's saying he is the fulfillment by his heritage of these scriptures. Verses 2 to 16 Uh, illustrate that even further. We'll come back to this in our question and answer time, but he just shows generation after generation after generation illustrating that Jesus is, in fact, a descendant of David. But maybe you're a Jew, and you say, okay, that's one thing that checks out. Jesus' heritage, his lineage, makes him a son of David. I'm going to need some more arguments to be convinced. Matthew says, I got him for you. Look at verse 18. We read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Notice verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew here is drawing our attention to the conception of Jesus, and it's not just reiterating the miracle of the Christmas story. Oh, that's nice. Matthew is doing it and quoting Isaiah and saying, what your scriptures anticipated, that a virgin would have a child in Isaiah chapter 7, has happened. He's saying, Jewish people, are you guys seeing this? Twice now, Jesus is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament has talked about. This is unbelievable. And he keeps going on and on and on. Look at chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 1. Matthew records for us, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, 
For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I find this particular instance to be fascinating. Here are these wise men, these Gentiles, who come to Jerusalem and they inquire of Herod, hey, we've seen the star, where is the king of the Jews? I'm sure Matthew was more than happy to include that even the Gentiles figured this out. They know that the star means that the Messiah is here. And Herod, almost as the text reads, we get the idea that he actually hadn't seen the star. Perhaps maybe a lot of people hadn't seen the star, otherwise it would have been more obvious to them. So as he's deducing what happens, he inquires from his own religious leaders. He goes to the scribes and he says, guys, I'm being told that the Messiah is here, this king of the Jews. Do the scriptures say anything about where his birthplace is? And they say, yeah. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And they quote from Micah chapter 5. That's the quotation you have there in verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. There's kind of this underlying question, though. How did the wise men know what the Jewish people did not? How did they know and see the star and come to Jerusalem inquiring about the king of the Jews? We don't know this for sure, but perhaps they had access to the scriptures. Perhaps they knew what the book of Numbers said, where we read, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And here are these Gentiles who come. And they're saying, we know the Messiah has been born. Where is he? And the Jewish people say, Bethlehem. And Matthew's just checking boxes. His lineage checks out. His birth checks out. His birthplace checks out. Not convinced yet? Let's keep going. Jump down to verse 13. We read, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Notice, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Again, Matthew's careful to say that this fleeing to Egypt, it's the fulfillment of a prophecy. This is from Hosea this time. He's hitting all of these Old Testament books. Hosea, Micah, Isaiah, over and over and over again. Your scriptures have talked about this. Even though this one isn't directly connected to Christ, Matthew's going to list another fulfillment of the scriptures in verse 16. After Herod comes and kills all the male children, two years and younger. Uh, We'll pick up in verse 16, actually. We read, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region uh, who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud, loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Even Herod's killing of these children 
Jeremiah talks about. I hope you're seeing this. All of these scriptures pointing us to Jesus as the fulfillment of them. Matthew is taking great pains as he's writing to Jewish people to illustrate this. There's more. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 23. We read, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this one about Jesus being a Nazarene is a little bit puzzling, on the surface, because there's no one prophecy that says those exact words, Jesus will be a Nazarene. What has helped commentators is that Matthew says that what was spoken by the prophets, plural, here, so maybe it's the accumulation of what a lot of prophets said about Jesus being a Nazarene that is true here. There's a couple of different interpretations of what it meant that Jesus is a Nazarene. One of them could be just his, um, like, geographic location that he lived at at the time. Uh, I think that's certainly true. We'll see that in a second, where Jesus uh, did dwell in the town that in the Old Testament would have been where Nazarene was, or Nazareth, excuse me. Uh, A second interpretation of Jesus being called a Nazarene is in regards to how people treated him. Remember what, uh, I think it's Nathaniel says in the book of John when he is told that the Messiah is from Nazareth. What does he ask? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth, (laughs) right? And there's just kind of like that disdain or disgust for people from Nazarene. They had a bad reputation. And some, actually the majority of commentators actually think that what is being talked about here is not so much the geographic location of where Jesus was, but actually the way in which people treated him, perhaps much like uh, Isaiah 53 says that he was despised and rejected. Jesus being a Nazarene would have made him very despised uh, by the people of his day. So, so that's what, what's going on there. There is one more fulfillment of prophecy that I would like us to turn to from our reading this week, and it's in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 12. We see, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This text was our text for the Christmas program just a couple of weeks ago. And it's a fulfillment of the prophecy that Isaiah had all the way back in chapter 9, when he says those those verses in uh, 15 and 16 right there, and he says, You know, you guys, Zebulon and Naphtali, the northern region of Israel at the time, on you a light will dawn. And by the time we get to Matthew's era in history, no longer is that region divided by tribal allotments. It's no longer Zebulon and Naphtali. It's Capernaum. It's where Jesus goes, to the very spot that Isaiah had prophesied. And the light that he brings is not like we turn the lights on, but it is the light of the gospel as he goes around preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And we're going to be coming across more of these fulfillments in the book of Matthew as he is trying to persuade his Jewish audience, listen, Jesus is the Messiah. I'm not making this up. The scriptures are telling you this. It'd be one thing for Jesus to just have fulfilled one of these things, right? Surely there were a lot of people who were born in Bethlehem. Surely there were a lot of people who moved to the region of Galilee. But for all of these things to be true of Jesus, the virgin birth, the line of David, fleeing from Egypt, there's only one man who fulfills these scriptures. Matthew's saying it's Jesus. Believe in him. We can imagine, right? I had you imagine that you were a Jew in the first century after the death of Christ. This had to be a really confusing time for people. Imagine the years following Pentecost as you're a Jew and there is this growing group of people who have the same appreciation for the Old Testament scriptures that you do, but they say that the Messiah has already come. How do you discern all of that? That's got to be complicated. We even can read in Acts that it was complicated for the Jewish Christians. James in the Jerusalem council and Paul had to convene and say, are we going to keep requiring circumcision? What are we going to expect of the Gentile believers? This was tricky for a lot of people, and you can just appreciate Matthew's heart in writing to Jews and saying, listen, guys, he's here. He's already come. And the deliverance that he brings is deliverance from sin. Believe in Jesus the Messiah. It's pretty awesome. I hope for us, although we don't need convincing of Jesus's identity, probably, I hope that at least this morning you are appreciating the continuity of the scriptures. Old Testament, New Testament, it's all telling us about one person. Hosea, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all of these places, Micah, that we're excited from this morning are pointing to Jesus Christ. I think that's pretty awesome. I hope that as we had this flyover of what Matthew is doing here that you just appreciate. Like, yeah, because sometimes, you know, if I'm honest, we can think of the Gospels as just four slightly different retellings of the same stories. Like, what's the point of reading these books if they all kind of tell us the same thing from four different angles? Well, I hope that at least looking at Matthew and the coming Gospels in this light will help you see, ah, there's a specific purpose for the writing of this book. It is different. There's a different audience. Matthew is trying to do something particularly. He's trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He is that king that people have so long expected. So that is it for the lesson. I would like to transition now to the discussion questions from this week with the time that we have remaining.